you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Tonight on The Readout. Oh my God. Why didn't you say something? Lisa, I mean, John's always been a little weird. They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine. A classic scene from the Oscar-winning film A Beautiful Mind to highlight Donald Trump's weird obsession with his boxes of purloined national secrets, which aides began referring to as his beautiful mind material. Also tonight, one of the biggest ironies in all of this, how Trump's own administration aggressively targeted people under the very same Espionage Act that Trump is complaining about being charged under. And more than three years after the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, the DOJ finally releases the damning findings of their investigation into the Minneapolis PD. But we begin tonight with the rantings of a twice-indicted former president who seems to forget that history is well-chronicled and easily searched. At his Bedminster Golf Club earlier this week, where it is cited in the special counsel's indictment that he, on two occasions, shared classified documents with people lacking security clearances, Donald Trump attacked the use of the Espionage Act, under which he is being charged. Charging a former president of the United States under the Espionage Act of 1917 wasn't meant for this. An act for a crime so heinous that only the death penalty would do is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. The Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies. It has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents. So, so let me just clarify that what you just heard from Trump about the Espionage Act is not true. And he, of all people, would know that because it was his very own Department of Justice that aggressively prosecuted cases that dealt with, you guessed it, the Espionage Act. And some of the people that his DOJ put behind bars for considerable prison sentences were charged as neither traitors nor spies. There is the case involving National Security Agency developer Nguyen Pho, who in 2017 pleaded guilty to one count of willfully retaining national defense information when he regularly took classified documents home from his office. Pho claimed it was to get extra work done on nights and weekends. He was not charged with spying or being a traitor, but he did get five and a half years in prison. And there was the case of another NSA contractor, Harold Martin, who in 2019 pleaded guilty to the same count after a massive amount of classified material was found both in his house and in his car. His lawyer described him as an impulsive hoarder. Does that sound familiar to anyone? He was not charged with spying or with being a traitor, but was sentenced to nine years in prison. 
And there are plenty more examples just like this. But the Trump DOJ's most aggressive prosecutions under the Espionage Act were for people who took classified information and leaked it to the press, specifically when those leaks were unflattering information about Trump or his administration, and especially if it had to do with Russia, Russia, Russia and the 2016 election. How many times did we hear Trump publicly call for the prosecution of leakers? We're going to find the leakers. (laughs) They're going to pay a big price for leaking. I've actually uh, called the Justice Department to look into the leaks. Those are criminal leaks. They ought to stop the leaking. You have leakers. I want the attorney general to be much tougher on the leaks from intelligence agencies, which are leaking like rarely have they ever leaked before at a very important level. As Heidi Katroser, professor of law at Northwestern University, points out in Lawfare, by the end of the Trump administration, the Justice Department had criminally charged eight individuals for leaking information to the press. Five of them were charged under the same provision of the Espionage Act, 18 U.S.C. Section 793, under which Trump has now been indicted. Two of the five were charged under Section 793 for unlawfully retaining, in addition to leaking information. The most well-known case was Reality Winner, a government contractor who leaked information to a journalist, turns out the wrong one, in 2017 that showed evidence confirming that the Kremlin had targeted and infiltrated our voting systems, counter to what Donald Trump was publicly saying at the time. And even though it was argued that she was acting in the public interest by sharing that information, the DOJ threw the book at Reality Winner and she was sentenced to more than five years in prison. Because when it comes to the Espionage Act, intent doesn't matter. And yet, to this point, we still don't know why Trump hoarded all those classified documents in his ballroom, in his bathroom, and in his personal office, other than his claim that they are his, which they are not. He hasn't made any claim that he was planning to use that information to serve the U.S. public interest. And with all that historical context at our fingertips, Katroser makes the point that none of Trump's supporters and sycophants will ever admit, quote, the Trump administration's record of Espionage Act prosecutions further casts doubt on the notion that Trump's own indictment is a witch hunt. Joining me now is Heidi Katroser, professor of law at Northwestern University, and Javed Ali, former senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council and associate professor at the University of Michigan's Ford Public School of Public Policy. Thank you both for being here. And before I I get to you, um, Heidi Katroser, and congrats on that great piece, I just want to play Bill Barr agreeing with you, Trump's former and very sycophantic uh, attorney general. This entire thing came about because of reckless conduct uh, of the president. If he had just turned over the documents, which I think every other person in the country would have done, they're the government's documents. They're official records. They're not his personal records. Battle plans for an attack on another country or, or, or Defense Department documents about our capabilities are in no universe Donald J. Trump's personal documents. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a very detailed indictment, uh, and it's very, very damning. And this idea of presenting Trump as a victim here, a victim of a witch hunt, uh, is ridiculous. 
So I think we can dispense with the idea that it's a witch hunt. But let's talk about the Espionage Act itself, Professor. Um, the, here, let's put it up on the screen. This is USC uh, 793. Whoever having unauthorized possession of access to or control over any document related to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used in the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, willfully communicates, delivers, transmits, or attempts to communicate, deliver, transmit to any person not entitled to receive it or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it to the officer of employee of the United States entitled to receive it. Sounds pretty much like what Trump did. But you've been actually very critical of the way that that act was used under the Trump administration and even before. Please explain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, it's, it's, it's a very confusingly written act, but it is important to note that the act actually differentiates between tangible items like documents and what the act calls information, which is, you know, orally conveying information. Um, when it comes to oral conveyances, um, you have this element that you quoted from, uh, where the statute says, you know, the, the person also needed to have some reason to believe it could be used to harm the U.S., which is still a very, very light standard. But when we're talking about documents, it's an even broader act. When we're talking about documents, the only textual requirement is that the information be uh, information, quote, relating to the national defense um, and that it had been willfully either conveyed uh, or willfully retained and uh, not returned upon being asked back. Courts have added a couple of small requirements to that, one that it be closely held, which effectively ends up meaning classified, um, and one that it be information that uh, might be, quote, potentially uh, useful to an enemy or harmful to the United States. So my concern over the years has been that that language is so broad um, and cl the classification system is, uh, uh, you know, widely and across the partisan spectrum seen um as so bloated that it essentially criminalizes the uh, uh, publication and certainly the publication of information that we see in the press all the time, um, and certainly the transmission of information to uh, journalists to report them, uh, including a lot of information we see in the New York Times and the Washington Post all the time. Um, now, it wasn't until recently um, th that the act was used pretty regularly to go after media sources. Um, it actually started uh, in the Obama administration, but uh, Donald Trump uh, latched onto that use of the act with full force, um, outpacing all prior administrations in his single administration, single term, um, in going after media sources uh, for conveying information to the press under the act, including, as uh, you pointed out in that wonderful lead up, uh, the famous case of reality winner, folks like Terry Albury, um, who was sentenced to more than four years, a former FBI agent, um, who also uh, spoke to the press about his concerns about racial profiling and certain journalistic surveillance techniques. Um, so I've always been very concerned about the potential free speech implications of the act. Um, as it relates to Donald Trump, though, as again, as the lead up wonderfully and, and very clearly articulated, um, I certainly see no evidence in the indictment or any of the public reporting that we had that we had um, uh, an effort by Trump here or have an effort by Trump here to somehow serve the public interest um, by conveying important information. Um, so this seems to be a far less flattering set of facts um, than those <laughs> that his administration prosecuted. And the thing is, Javed Ali, the, the, the point, I think, of laying out those other cases, like Mr. Foe, for instance, who was 
working from home, essentially, still got still pulled nine years. Um, the, or the, the gentleman who was sort of hoarding, which is identical to what Trump was doing, pulled uh, nine years. I'm sorry, Mr. Foe got five and a half years. This gentleman who was basically hoarding like Donald Trump was got nine years in prison. If Donald Trump is claiming he's being treated differently than anyone else would. This makes it clear he wasn't. If you could put that graphic back up, the only way that we've seen a disparity in the way people are treated when they take documents is that people who are way higher up the ladder, David Petraeus, you know, war hero general, Sandy Berger, who was an NSA official, the higher up people are the ones who get probation and a fine, right? The ones who give it back who are way high up, like the vice president of the United States, former vice president Mike Pence, who give it back, aren't charged at all. So if Donald Trump, if anything, Donald Trump is being treated far better than anyone else who has committed this crime. Joy, great to be with you. And uh, as Heidi said, and as your piece said, yeah, there is a long history of prosecutions under the espionage under the Espionage Act for for leakers, for people who unlawfully retained um, information and then didn't uh, give it back when when asked. And then uh, the the classic spies, the people who actually commit espionage. Now, this the case with uh, President Trump is is under Section 93 is very different from the other two ones that I described. But the indictment sort of lays out a, a really strong case. And this is what I've said over the past year, that as DOJ was building the evidence in this case, whatever those charges were going to be and whatever that case looked like, it had to be very strong because to bring a weak case to court wouldn't just be the right strategy. So as Attorney General Barr uh, has said and others, this seems to be a pretty damning indictment. And I think it's going to be a very tough legal challenge for President Trump to uh, to overcome just based on the facts as we know them. And, and Professor Petrosser, it, it's even worse in the sense there's a guy, and by the way, Daniel Ellsberg just died, who leaked the Pentagon Papers. We should note that uh, he just died at age 92. That was sort of the famous case of somebody leaking to the media in the national interest, right? It's still considered a felony. But to go to somebody who's not on the heroic side, a guy named Jack Teixeira um, has been indicted and accused of doing under the same statute, taking classified documents, bragging about them, putting them on, on, a, on a gaming server. He's, he, he could be facing a life, you know, this guy, that guy with the Nazi tattoos and stuff. no one is going to look favorably on any excuse anyone else gives for doing this. Donald Trump is trying to claim that these documents are not just he could take them, but that he owns them. None of that makes any sense. And he is the, the one whose administration prosecuted this the most. Yes, absolutely. And in terms of uh, your point uh, about uh, and, and the lead ups, uh, you know, references to Trump's repeated claims that this is his information. He owns this information. They're in his beautiful boxes. Um, that is, it's simply not true. Um, and the real cherry on top in, in terms of the absurdity of his claims that these belong to him is that he keeps citing the Presidential Records Act. Um, I believe I saw one commentator, I think it was Daniel Dale of CNN, say, um, citing the Presidential Records Act for, uh, as a way of Trump saying these records belong to me uh, is akin to saying I was allowed to keep going when I was driving along the road because there was a stop sign. I mean, it's just it's it's upside down world. It's the complete opposite of the truth. The whole point of the Presidential Records Act is that uh, information, presidential documents, information one creates or possesses in furtherance of being president while they're president. Uh, are not the personal property uh, of the president right. and certainly of the ex-president. And last word to you, I'll give you the last word on this, Javed Ali. Um, 
it, given this makeup of the court that we see in Georgia, would you expect, given these facts, for this to be a case that would be easy to prosecute and get a conviction? I mean, that uh, will be uh, played out over the, the coming months. But again, the, the, the case seems really strong. The, the facts uh, seem to be more in favor of the of the prosecution. And sure. President Trump's legal team is going to have to come up with a really novel approach <laughs> to convince a jury that that case isn't as strong as it is. And as someone who worked in uh, the national security arena my whole career and dealt with very classified intelligence uh, every day, I mean, again, it's inconceivable for this stuff to have escaped uh, the official yeah. domain at the level that President Trump had. And at no point was any of that material ever officially declassified. There is a yeah. process for that, but none of that happened yeah. here. So again, I, I think the legal case is going to be very, very difficult for him. Oh, but but his his uh, his defense is going to be it's mine. Heidi Kutroser and Javed Ali, thank you both very much. And before we go to break, a quick reminder to tune in next Tuesday for a very special edition of The Readout featuring Vice President Kamala Harris. We'll be discussing America's post-Roe reality and why abortion rights will define the 2024 election and beyond. That is next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. And up next on The Readout, dissecting Trump's unhealthy obsession with America's secrets. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine. They took it from me in the raid. They broke into my house. They broke into my house. One of the weirder aspects of the whole classified documents case is Donald Trump's golem-like insistence that the classified and top secret material he kept stored in Mar-a-Lago ballrooms and bathrooms don't actually belong to the U.S. government, which they do, but instead they belong to him. Well, apparently this behavior isn't particularly new for the twice impeached, twice indicted former president. The New York Times is reporting today that Trump had a, quote, unusual attachment to his boxes, so much so that the White House aides referred to all of the White House aides referred to all the material he carted around with him almost everywhere during his time in office as the beautiful mind material, referring to, of course, the book and movie depicting the life of schizophrenic mathematician John Nash, who covered his office with newspaper clippings, believing they held a Russian code he needed to crack. The Times writes, the phrase had a specific connotation. The aides employed it to capture a type of organized chaos that Mr. Trump insisted on. The collection and transportation of a blizzard of newspapers and official documents that he kept close and that seemed to give him a sense of security. One former White House official who was granted anonymity to describe the situation said that while the materials were disorganized, 
Mr. Trump would notice if someone had rifled through them or they were not arranged in a particular way. It was, the person said, how his mind worked. Joining me now is David K. Johnson, founder of DCReport.org and author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. I don't know where to begin, David, so I'm just going to let you comment on all of that. I mean, this man seems obsessed with this box of disorganized material that included our national secrets and stuff. <laughs> it's well, let's, let, let, let's start by thinking about the movie Citizen Kane and Rosebud the sled that was taken away from the hero of the movie when he was a little boy by his cold-hearted mother and how it shaped his whole life. Donald grew up in a horrible, horrible household. Be glad you didn't grow up to be Donald Trump. He is a miserable person inside, and he is an empty vessel. And he tries constantly to fill the emptiness inside. Money, winning, awards, Shaq's shoe. Uh, Mike Tyson's glove. And these documents are part of this same need and this belief, by the way, that he has, like the French Sun King, that I am the state, (laughs) which is complete nonsense. Um, And Donald will never in his life, sadly, feel joy, love, contentment. He'll say to every audience, we love you. But it's not a part of who he is. Everything about him is transactional. And these documents serve that function. They also have a second function. And that is, he thought, to protect and insulate him. And then when the FBI conducted, executed a search warrant, there was no raid. There was no busting into his house. They made an appointment. They showed up. They weren't armed. They were dressed so nobody would think they were FBI agents. When they showed up to get these documents uh, from Trump, I wrote back then that Donald has no idea how to interpret national security documents, which are written in a a way that requires an understanding of how they're drafted. But what Donald does know is value. Mm -hmm. And this was a a place, Mar-a-Lago, where all sorts of people who are agents of foreign governments were showing up. When he went to Bedminster, Uh, his golf course and met with Saudi officials about the Saudi golf tournament was being set up. He took some of the documents up there at the time of that meeting. Now, I have absolutely no evidence, let me be clear, that Donald has in fact sold or attempted to sell our national secrets. But his history of behavior says we should be suspicious that that's the case and be concerned about it, Joy. And just to, to, to clarify this, the stuff he had was information concerning the defense and weapons capabilities of the U.S. and foreign countries, U.S. nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack and plans for possible retaliation in case of a foreign attack. To that, he said, I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. I really don't want you looking through my boxes, mine, 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 and treated them the way he treats everything. Let me just play a little sound mashup of the way Donald Trump talks about things and people. Look at my African-American over here. Look at him. Our farmers are going to be so happy. I authorized by military. Kevin McCarthy. Where's Kevin? There's my Kevin. My generals and my military. Steve, where's my Steve? The bravest guy in the room, Steve Scalise. David, my Kevin, my military, my farmers, my African-American, and also my information about our nuclear weapons and vulnerability to military attack. Explain. So, Joy, you and I and most people have a clear line between that's mine and that's yours. 
Donald doesn't have any such line. He grew up in a household where getting the money, as long as you can get arrested, got the money, didn't matter that you cheated, that you lied, that you broke the law. That was what was your measure of success. That's how you pleased daddy. And to Donald, he believes, like the French Sun King, that he is the government. And that's absolute nonsense in a democracy. Uh, and Donald, remember, claims to be the world's greatest expert on 23 subjects. One of them is a subject that, as you know, I'm a worldwide, regarded worldwide as an expert on tax policy. Donald doesn't know anything about any of these subjects. He doesn't know more about ISIS than the generals. He doesn't know anything about nuclear weapons. So the holding of these documents is tied up with the emotional horrors of his childhood and this need to hang on to things like like someone who longs for their pet stuffed rabbit or doll from when they were a child. Uh, and at the same time, you know, Donald knows value. Whatever else you think of Donald, he can look at a piece of land and say, oh, I can get value out of that building other people don't see. And those documents, oh my, how much would foreign hostile governments pay just to yeah. get a peek at him? And he's also uh, a liar and, and, and cheap. But I should note for all of you who uh, follow that story in Miami that he said food for everyone at uh, Versailles. He, did, he didn't buy anybody any, any food. I almost feel like we should tell this story in Smeagol's voice because it is like the story of how Smeagol became Gollum uh, and the filthy hobbits is like I almost expect him to start saying that. David K. Johnston, thank you for explaining that for us. Thank Coming you, up. Spiegel. The Justice Department shares their findings after a two-year investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department prompted by the killing of George Floyd. The damning findings are next. Today, the Justice Department released a scathing assessment of the Minneapolis Police Department, just over three years since George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. George Floyd should be alive today, but the patterns and practices we observed made what happened to George Floyd possible. Among the patterns and practices observed, Minneapolis police use excessive force, discriminate against Black and Native American people, and fail to take health complaints seriously. The city and police department agreed to enter into a federal consent decree, which requires reforms overseen by an independent monitor and approved by a federal judge. Joining me now is former prosecutor Charles Coleman Jr., who is a civil rights attorney, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Charles Coleman podcast. And Charles, um, great to see you. Key findings here. Officers routinely used excessive force even when there was no force necessary, disproportionately stopped Black and Native American people, patrolled differently based on race. And in 19 police shootings, a significant force were unconstitutional. There was even stories of police officers responding to somebody saying, I can't breathe by saying, yes, you can breathe. You're talking. Uh, your thoughts on this finding and on the fact that it was done at all? Well, first off, Joy, we do have to acknowledge Kristen Clark and the work that she's done as the head of the Civil Rights Division at DOJ, because progress is relative and under a different administration, we may not have even seen this. Now that we've gotten that out the way, I have to be very candid. When are we going to broaden the conversation and make this a discussion around the ills in American policing? If you recall, Joy, it was about a year ago that we were talking about a very similar report coming out of Louisville, Kentucky, 
if you swap these reports and you put it pretty pretty much redacted the city, you would not be able to tell the difference from one city to the next. Where I'm going with this is we cannot continue to treat these things as though they are discrete occurrences occurring in just different pockets of America. This is much more representative of a systemic issue within American policing that has to be addressed addressed on a culture and a policy level. And until we broaden that conversation and make this discussion more meaningful and get to the root of this, we're going to continue to watch the same movie over and over again. Yeah, I mean, just look at the number of cities that are already under consent decree. Louisville, Baltimore, Chicago, Cleveland, New Orleans, Newark, Ferguson, still under one, Albuquerque, Seattle, which is considered now compliant. But I mean, it, it, the thing is, we, we now have, and I'm glad you acknowledge Kristen Clark, under the Trump, his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, they stopped doing consent decrees. They changed the rules. So we're just not even going to do it at all. So the fact they're doing it at all is important. But what 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 do you, what does it mean in your view that we're still doing these individual responses, as you said, but we can't pass a George Floyd Act to hit that national conversation you're, you're talking about? Well, I think it's part of us. Part of it is how we're socialized to look at police, Joy. I think that a lot of it has to do with the idea that it is very difficult for us to accept the notion that American policing is rooted in a system and a a a, a model of violence and aggression rather than that of service and protection because of everything that we're told about police, everything that we're taught to believe about police. But the reality is that different communities and different people in America, specifically black people, marginalized people, people who are are pushed outside of of the, the center of America, are oftentimes experiencing policing in a very, very different way. And that's a reality that we have to actually come to grips with. I'm of the belief, Joy, that going into 24, into this election cycle, anyone who purports to care about these communities where people are courting votes has to commit themselves to reviving the notion of police reform. That that, that has to be negotiable. Uh, let, let's quick, quickly talk about the tree of life uh, uh, mass shooting. The, the, the sentencing phase has begun. The, there was a guilty verdict in that case. Fascinating uh, argument by the public defender for the shooter trying to get out, uh, frankly, of the death penalty by saying that he wasn't killing Jews because of religion, um, but rather because, quote, he believed they were bringing in immigrants who were committing genocide against white people and children. None of this makes sense. None of this is true. But this is what Mr. Boward believed to be real and true. So basically saying he's a he's a, an out of his mind racist, not anti-Jewish to try to stay alive. Eleven people were murdered. Eleven um, counts of obstructing the exercise of a of religious beliefs. You know, I think it's it's there is a such thing as creative luring. And then I think it's just some things that is borderline ethically irresponsible. I realize that you have an obligation as an attorney to mount as vigorous a defense for your client as you can. But to sort of play this game when you're talking about uh, why your client did such a heinous thing that he's now been convicted of uh, at the expense of, again, adding more pain and discomfort to the families that they have been affected, I just find to be reprehensible from the standpoint of being an attorney and understanding that there are difficult times that you have to construct arguments on behalf of your clients. But this was not the way to go. Yeah. As somebody who opposes the death penalty, I find it morally repugnant that someone has to try to make an argument to keep uh, the state from killing someone uh, and make a, a, a wild argument like that. That's just my personal opinion. Charles Coleman, Thank you very much. Still ahead, President Biden attends a big gun safety summit in Connecticut amid increasing calls for him to say something, anything about Trump's latest indictment. We'll be right back. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. 
We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. It's pretty clear that the twice-impeached, twice-indicted 2020 loser had a rough birthday week. While he was busy getting arraigned on criminal charges, President Biden was busy delivering a strong economy with cooling inflation, speaking at a summit on gun legislation he signed into law, and getting two more of his 134 federal judges confirmed. He also got several ticketing and travel companies to scrap those really annoying hidden fees, part of the plan he announced during the State of the Union to address banning junk fees. Tomorrow, he will host his first political rally with union members in Philadelphia. Here in Washington, Democratic Senate aides and donors are telling NBC News that despite all of that, they're worried that Biden's silence on Trump's most recent indictment is leaving a vacuum. One aide said Democrats should not be waiting until a general election to start defining this. Another Democratic strategist who requested anonymity said Democrats shouldn't focus solely on an economic message, arguing it's short-sighted to forfeit the opportunity to showcase Trump's legal peril, even when voters say they care most about so-called kitchen table issues. If you need a reminder that being the nice guy who plays by the book doesn't work on Republicans, MAGA Republican Congressman Greg Stubbe told Fox Business that he thinks House Republicans will move forward with impeaching President Biden by this fall for, I I don't know, who who knows what, the Ray-Bans maybe being related to Hunter, not executing migrant parents at the border with drone bombs and locking their kids in slaughterhouses to work. Who knows? They'll think of something. Joining me now is presidential historian Douglas Brinkley, professor of history at Rice University, and Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst and host of the Michael Steele podcast. Uh, When I get in these situations, I like to ask WWRD, what would a Republican do? Because Republicans are good at the kind of messaging and strategy stuff. So Michael Steele, If you had a Democratic president twice indicted, liable for sexual abuse and facing 37 counts in Florida, uh, do you think as that Democrats would that that you would counsel Democrat or Republicans to speak about it or to stay silent like Biden is doing? Oh, they'd be blowing that ish up all day long, every day, 24 (laughs) seven, every which way you could possibly flip it, whip it and slap it down. (laughs) Absolutely. Flip it, whip it and slap it down. Absolutely, they would. You know they would. But here's the deal. Democrats need to understand Joe Biden, (laughs) President Joe Biden, does not need to speak on this. All the rest of you Democrats should be out here making a noise. Let the man stay above the fray. Let the man be president. He doesn't need to get in the mosh pit with Donald Trump. Let him do his thing. All these sort of, you know, anonymous consultants who are upset that they aren't running ads right now because they ain't making no moolah on it. Um, y'all get together in the room, get your little ad campaign together, 
And like I said, whip it, flip it, smack it down 24-7. But leave Joe Biden out of it. He does not need to comment on on the president's, uh, former president's legal woes. He just doesn't. That's what the Democratic DNC is for. I, I don't know if you can beat whip it, flip it and smack it down, Douglas Brinkley, and I will not ask you to try on this Friday today. But I mean, history is here to help, as the great Rachel Maddow says. When when, you know, Nixon had his travails, did Democrats talk about it? Like, I mean, did, were they quiet about it? Did they stay above the fray? Uh, I think it's just different because um, in, it, it, we're now dealing with, um, I agree with what Michael said completely. I mean, this is a Justice Department. Merrick Garland is Biden's attorney general and Donald Trump's going to have to um, you know, face the fiddler in a court of law, it looks like. I don't think Biden wants to come into that ham-fisted. It'll only uh, allow an echo um, you know, that uh, chamber kind of effect on the Republicans that this is all about politics. I don't believe it is about politics. I think it's I think Merrick Garland is doing the right thing. I think Donald Trump should have been indicted. I think he took these documents, wouldn't give them back. And he's facing his comeuppance. But Biden needs to keep a moat between himself and the Justice Department on Trump at this juncture. Now, look, we're a long ways away from the election. There may be a circumstance where he's going to have to come forward and talk about, but not now, not when things are in uh, transition. We don't even have uh, when, you know, the details of timing pinned down. Yeah. And I mean, meanwhile, uh, Michael, you know, Asa Hutchinson raised the, the the idea that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have this loyalty pledge anymore if this guy is going to be maybe in behind bars while he's getting the nomination. And the RNC said, no, nah, man, you have to have the loyalty pledge. You have to be loyal to him, even if he's locked up. Well, they have to have a loyalty pledge because if they don't, they have no basis going to show up at the polls uh, in November. And then to the extent that they do, they're going to show up in primaries and run against the very incumbents who's, who got rid of the uh, the loyalty pledge. So you see their conundrum. Ace is absolutely right. Loyalty pledges are stupid. Uh, they they are very, very, uh, how should we say, they're worse than schoolyard. I mean, even, even on the playground, we didn't come up with that kind of crazy because you knew <laughs> in, in the middle of the fight, people are going to be switching sides. People are going to be doing what's in their best interest. And that's ultimately what's going to happen here. Yeah, someone's going to sign the loyalty pledge and they're not going to get the nomination. And then they're going to be sitting there going, you know what, I just can't support Trump. Then what's the party going to do? So they set up this straw dog argument that will fall flat on his face. And to the extent that everyone hold true to it, now you saddled them going forward in any future contest that they want to get into with this particular weight around their ankles. So Ace has got it right. Um, the party's got it wrong here. And I've never been a fan of these types of uh, tactics because in the end, they just don't work. Yeah. yeah uh, meanwhile, um, there, the, the 2024 election is getting more and more complicated. There's this group called No Labels which uh, has a very strange um, sort of collection of people, Joe Lieberman, Nancy Jacobson, um, uh, Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, Ben Chavis, former NAACP leader, uh, John Hope Bryant, um, that are threatening to launch a, a third-party campaign. And, and Doug, their criteria for not doing it is if Biden has a wide lead, which seems like that doesn't make any sense. You're saying if it's close— you're going to get in and essentially guarantee that potentially Donald Trump gets elected. This seems backwards and odd to me. Your thoughts? I agree. You know, no labels to me is people that want TV time 
And this is the way to get it to somehow be in the mix, they're, meaning they're not embedded with the Republicans a party of today properly or the Democrats. So they're going to make some noise and rumbles. I think they just stay out of it. Uh, I'm not re- I, I always have enjoyed third parties uh, efforts if they can be constructive. But we look at so many of them that have, uh, you know, been damaging. I mean, George Wallace's American Party run in 68. I'm not sure Ross Perot helped anything in 92. I I don't think Stein helped anything in Nader when they ran. Uh, uh, if you're going to go into it, things in a third party way, you got to mean business and picking and choosing. If this person's in, then we'll get out or we're not. Uh, it's a lot of noise. This is right now a battle between Trump and uh, or DeSantis or another Republican of Trump uh, legal woes get him and Joe Biden. And I think there's really uh, no labels to get out of the game. Well, I mean, it's not just them, um, uh, Michael. It's also Cornell West saying he's going to get in, essentially be Jill Stein. And I don't know. Jill, there's some argument that Jill Stein might have made a difference. I mean, you just put up Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. The votes she got are more than Donald Trump's margin. And I think that's why Democrats are having some heartburn about this, Michael Steele. And then you, you throw in, you know, this new version of Jill Stein, which I guess is Cornell West. It's weird. It is. Um, and, and the problem, the problem with the no labels uh, narrative is tell me what state you win. Just tell me. OK, so if if if, if, if Biden is not way ahead, then tell me what state you win, because if you can't tell me what state you win, then yeah. why are you running? Is it New Hampshire? Let, let, is it California? Which state does no labels win, regardless of where Biden is on the board? And that's the problem me, a lot of folks in town have with it. Let me really quickly play what a lot of people are thinking might be a preview to 2028. Um, if we don't know what he's going to do, but a lot of people pining after this person potentially maybe running for president one day. Here's Gavin Newsom doing some work on Fox News. Fox, not news, just Fox. We can handle of course all we of can. this. OK, I'm a border state. Ron DeSantis is not. I know he's desperate to get in on the action. No, because a lot he's of people- belly flop. Donald Trump is going to clean. Is it his fair clock. that Joe Biden DeSantis will has belly flop? He will clean his clock. He needs attention. This is a stunt. It's embarrassing. It's It's pathetic. I'm going to give you each a quick 30 seconds out of this, starting with you, Michael Steele. I mean, the idea Democrats don't have a bench is belied by that guy. Yeah, they do have a bench. They have a number of of folks that they can turn to beginning in 28, uh, and they will. And Gavin Newsom um, uh, is trying to put his bona fides and and street cred in, in play now. Get out there take on uh, someone like a DeSantis in this race that sets up a possible Gavin DeSantis uh, battle uh, in 28. Um, It's smart politics, uh, whether regardless how you feel about the governor, it's just smart politics to do what he's doing. You see some of that on the Republican side as well. Uh, Douglas Brinkley, but the other uh, person out there is Kamala Harris, who is the sitting vice president and is also young enough to play that game in 2028, too. We don't know what she wants to do, but she could jump in that as well. I think she probably would. And Gavin Newsom would. Gretchen Whitmer is, is really popular. New Vanity uh, Fair uh, essay I, rep, uh, I recommend people read. So they do have a great bench in the Democratic Party. But the bottom line is the party discipline Democrats. And it's about just lining up behind Biden-Harris right now. And that is what they're going to do. I don't care what uh, DeSantis or anybody else says. Doug and Michael are going to stick around because guess what? They're going to give us their picks for who won the week right after this break. Lordy Jesus, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes, who won the week? Back with 
with me, Douglas Brinkley and Michael Steele. Michael, you are the veteran in this game. Tell us, Mr. Chairman, who won the week? Little noticed uh, this week was the the effort brought by, on behalf of music producers and writers and songwriters across the country, the National uh, Music Publishers Association dropped a $250 million lawsuit on Twitter for copyright infringement of their artists uh, and musicians, who we all take for granted when we put that tweet out there. Oh, I love that. That's powerful. Okay, Douglas Brinkley, who won the week? I go with Joe Biden because of what happened to Donald Trump, his chief opponent. Uh, looks like he may be doing uh, being charged for jail time for felonies. Uh, what a big bit of boost. All Biden has to run on is I'm not Donald Trump. And most <laughs> impressively today, his speech in West Hartford, Connecticut, talking about we need to do more to stop these mass shootings. We've had 26 heinous yeah. mass shootings already in 2023. So uh, Biden's yeah. talk, I thought, uh, was exceptional today. Uh, my answer for that, that is an excellent point, but my answer for who won the week is two words, baby. Jack Smith. <laughs> Watch him work. That's all I'm saying. He's got a Subway sandwich bag, a mean look on his face, and he's ready to rumble. He's going to bring it in Florida. Douglas Brinkley. He looked mean, but we need mean sometimes. Douglas Brinkley yeah, and do. Michael Steele. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. And that's tonight's readout. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.